electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, ready or not, here AI comes. Is it good news or bad news? Well, it depends on who you ask. We checked in with LinkedIn founder and tech investor Reid Hoffman. Oh my God, the robots are coming for your jobs, or they're coming for your information sources and democracy, or maybe they're even coming for you. Yeah. Actually, in fact, the robots are coming to help you. And ExxonMobil doubling down on green energy. President of the company's low-carbon solutions, Dan Amen. In the long run, the only way the world's going to get on the path to net zero is for the energy transition to be economically viable. Those conversations, plus former President Trump back in Florida after an eventful trip to New York, and J.P. Morgan's suing a tech founder for duping the bank. This is both a fascinating sort of story on one side, it's an embarrassing one if we're being, you know, truthful about it. A big bank's big mistake and a rising star brought down to earth. Who gets arrested at an airport? People who are trying to leave. It's April 5th and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Let's talk about uh, Cleveland Fed uh, President Loretta Mester. She's saying that uh, monetary policy is moving, quote, somewhat further into restrictive territory this year, with the Fed funds rate moving above 5%. She seems to be squarely in the Jamie Dimon uh, camp. She made the comments in a speech to an NYU group last night. Precisely how much higher the Fed funds rate will need to go from here and for how long policy will need to remain restrictive will depend on how much inflation and inflation expectations are moving down. Esther said that she was comfortable with the quarter point uh, rate hike in March because authorities had stepped in to manage risk coming from the banking sector. Esther also pushing back on market views that the Fed will need to cut rates much sooner than central bankers currently expect. She said cutting rates isn't in her current forecast model. Mester is not, though, we should oh. mention, a voting member of the FOMC this year. All the money that, that we did stabilize it, the FDID stabilized Janet Yellen, someone stabilized it, but as Barry Sternlich pointed out yesterday, every quarter point, the marks on all the duration risk uh, treasuries that supposedly a lot of people still own, it just the marks get worse. So, yeah, you stabilize it. That costs money. But can't and you go, you're, I mean, then can't you're just you go to putting yourself window? in a worse position. I mean, yeah, they've, they've I, gone I to the discount it. window. Right, and, and at you par. Can, Those are get crappy loans, though. I'm not, I wouldn't, you I don't, be a buyer? I wouldn't be on the other end of that. And we are, basically. The Fed is. Yeah. Yeah. That's us. Johnson & Johnson, I mean, I knew 20 years ago. I, I made sure I bought cornstarch because, you know, I've got a thing for powder for baby powder. You've I mentioned that over, you know, the entire time I've been on yes. the show. I like baby. I use a lot of it. John, I don't know why. Johnson & Johnson has proposed pay, but I, I would never use the talc because it, it, the, the molecular structure has always been somewhat suspect. It's not asbestos, obviously, 
but there's a lot of ways you can, something can be carcinogenic. And they denied it and denied it and said, no way, no way. But now, I mean, $8.9 billion is a lot of money. And that would be, and I don't, it's like, I, I think they're not saying one way or the other, whether they're conceding that it causes anything. They're, they're settling. Yeah, right. they're settling. $8.9 billion uh, to thousands of people who sued the company, alleging that their use of J&J's talc-containing powders caused cancer. Company J&J uh, established a deal with the litigation would make uh, payments over 25 years. A bankruptcy court and 75% of voting claimants must approve the settlement. Uh, J&J said it continues to believe that the claims lack scientific merit. I don't know why you pay, but resolving the litigation would compensate the claimants while allowing the company to focus on its core mission. And uh, you can see that that's being uh, taken positively uh, by market participants. It's up about uh, 3%. Former President Donald Trump is back in Florida after pleading not guilty to 34 felony counts in a New York court yesterday. Trump spoke to supporters last night from Mar-a-Lago, and Eamon Javers joins us with the latest. Good morning, Eamon. Good morning, Becky. It was quite a scene in New York yesterday. We had helicopters flying overhead, demonstrators in the streets, and intense security in the courtroom as former President Donald Trump was charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records relating to payments to porn star Stormy Daniels and others dating back as far as the 2016 presidential campaign. Now, this was the first time in American history that a former president has seen the inside of a courtroom as a defendant, and it came at a time that he's the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. Court documents laid out the tawdry details of an episode from the 2016 campaign in which the then-Trump attorney Michael Cohen set about paying hush money to three people who had embarrassing stories to tell about Donald Trump, including the former porn star Stormy Daniels. Now, the Manhattan DA said Trump falsified records relating to those payments, falsely claiming that they were legal retainer payments to Cohen in order to obscure their true purpose as payoff payments. That kind of business record fraud, he said, is a bread and butter case for his office. We have a distinct and strong, I would say profound, independent interest in New York State. This is the business capital of the world. Uh, we regularly uh, do cases involving false business statements. Uh, the, 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 the bedrock, in fact, the basis for uh, business integrity and a well-functioning business marketplace is true and accurate record keeping. That's the charge that's brought here. Now, the former president rallied his supporters upon return to Florida last night, telling them the case is simply illegitimate. This fake case was brought only to interfere with the upcoming 2024 election, and it should be dropped immediately. So what's next? Well, the first thing that's going to happen is discovery when the defense will get access to all the evidence against Trump. Then various motions will be made debating uh, points in the case. And the next hearing here is not expected until December. And that sets up potentially a dramatic election year trial of a presidential candidate. That's something that we haven't seen before, guys. Back over to you. Hey, man, I guess the, the slow roll on this, um, you know, at that point, there's going to be a lot more activity in terms of where the presidential uh, race stands at that point. Yeah, I mean, we'll be heading into an election year the next time there's a hearing uh, going into 2024. I mean, it's sort of astonishing timing uh, to think that it would take that long to get to uh, a hearing here. Um, and I think the, the key thing here for the DA is he's going to have to explain to a jury and, you know, by extension to the American public, why, if this case is so important, why it hasn't been charged until now. I mean, these 
underlying facts have been well known for years. Uh, the conduct here has been described in newspapers you know, for a long time. Uh, we're talking about a case that goes back to 2016. The, the, he's going to have to explain to the jury why these falsified business records allegedly uh, are so important to, that they need to be dealt with now. Uh, and if they are so important that they need to be dealt with now, how come that hadn't been done before? So yeah, he's got something of an uphill battle, I think, politically and possibly legally. He's got we'll to get the misdemeanor to a felony. He's, he's good at felonies to misdemeanors, but uh, that, that's, that's everybody. And for, it's a little weird because, and I'm, you know, my eyes are glazing over, because for two weeks while this was in the works, everybody's been talking about, well, if there's nothing else, this. And then as it turned out, it, it, it really pretty much was this. So they've already, I've heard it litigated for two weeks about how it's got to, there's got to be a second, or there's got to be an actual crime that raises the misdemeanor uh, charge up to a felony. Right. And I, I, I don't know, like the journal, everybody talking about. I, I can't talk about this till December, Eamon. Um, I can't. I, it's just. I guess we have to, though. We, we don't really have a choice, do we? I mean, it's such a it's such a bizarre situation, Joe. I mean, we just now have never yep. seen anything like it. Um, and you you wonder, you know, does this have any impact at all on Donald right. Trump's viability as a presidential right. candidate? Does it and make as a presidential it better or runner? does it make it disqualifying? It's somewhere in between there. Right. And we have no idea. It. We have no idea. Right. It's crazy. All right. Thanks. Andy I mean, Jim. there's a hardcore group of Trump supporters who will never leave him. Uh, and, and then, then are there any Trump voters who are peel offable for other Republican candidates? We just don't know the answer right. to that right now. All right. All right. We don't. We've got plenty of time to figure it out. Now to a high profile fraud case that's uh, literally happening in front of us in real time. The Justice Department charging uh, Charlie Javis with defrauding J.P. Morgan out of $175 million. Javis is the founder of college financial planning platform Frank, the 31-year-old, accused of, quote, falsely and dramatically inflating the number of customers that the company had in a scheme to fraudulently induce J.P. Morgan to acquire the startup in 2021. She stood to gain more than $45 million from the alleged deception. In January, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon called the acquisition of Frank a, quote, huge mistake, but said he couldn't share details because of pending litigation. Now, the CEO was once named to Forbes's 30 under 30 list. She was arrested Monday night at Newark Airport and now faces four counts of fraud and conspiracy that each carry a maximum sentence of 30 years in prison. She's also being sued for fraud by the SEC, a spokesperson for Javis's, uh, for Javis's attorney telling CNBC that she denies the allegations. Of course, this is both a fascinating sort of story on one side. It's an embarrassing one if we're being, you know, truthful about it in the context of J.P. Morgan. And I, I agree, it's you know sometimes hard to find deceit, but when you're going to buy a company and you do diligence on the company, unless you know everybody is lying, the accountants are lying, and the accountants aren't doing the work, and the advisors on these things aren't doing the. I mean, there's a lot of people around a transaction of these of, of, of this size, yeah. and not to have any idea uh, that the numbers uh, aren't exactly what. Uh, is being said. Kind of go back to FTX, you know, right? And all the investors and the Sam Bankman Freed and the rush to get into these things because you think you're getting into a, a you know, just the. the totally. The, the, the more complicated part, and, and, and the, I have great admiration for, for JP Morgan as a bank, though, yeah. is that they are in the business of being advisors. That That is, un, unlike the. Unlike Sequoia? Uh, unlike the venture capitalists. No, unlike the venture capitalists who are basically met, making, uh, you know, 100 bets knowing that, you know, most of them are going to go to zero. Uh, I, I think when a big bank 
does something like this, they're How much mo- they're not it? they're not doing it that way. It's well, a different would model. It been on, it would, would not have been on Jamie's radar. How much? Mo- no, a tiny deal. Yeah, 175 million dollar deal. 175 million. It's like Volter. Yeah. I'm still trying to catch up on Carlos Watson. You know, instead Volter. of this part of the yeah. fraud. Volter on succession. You know, oh it's yeah. Like, yeah. I'm, you know, we're moving, we're shaking, we're innovating. She's young. She's got college kids. You know, it's what we need to do. JP, you know, it's like, reminds me of Walter. It really reminds me of Walter, which, as you know, is basically worth nothing eventually. Um, what, the headline for me, yeah. arrested at the airport. Where was she going? Hanging out at the airport. Just or was likes, she on the way to leave the likes country? Annie. What are, what are those? I like those. I would almost hang out at one of those Annie's Annie's. pretzels and Annie's. They got like the cinnamon little popper type stuff. So I could hang out at an airport. Because of some of the food they had. Well, the question is, where was she going? Well, that's I what I mean. Flight risk. Right. Who if gets she, arrested in an airport? If she was, people who are trying to leave. If she leaving. was headed to Miami, it's a different story. Unless you're, there's a lot of conferences down there. Right. <laughs> which we need to know which terminal. Right. Was it the international was it terminal? Me? Exactly. Got to find out. Cheese will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod, the age of AI. LinkedIn co-founder, AI investor, and fellow podcaster, Reid Hoffman. Do you think that eventually down the road we need to be very wary of machines that could actually supplant us? The thing that always people get wrong is you say, well, is there a 0% chance of that? And they go, no, and they go, oh my God, the robots are coming. And it's like, but if I told you you're gonna drive home from work today and there's above 0% chance you're gonna die on the road, you go, well, yeah, I'm aware. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Uh, President Biden meeting with science and technology advisors at the White House yesterday about the risk and opportunity of artificial intelligence. This comes after calls from Elon Musk and Andrew Yang and Steve Wozniak and others to put a six-month pause on the further development of AI. Joining us right now is Greylock partner uh, Reid Hoffman, of course, the co-founder of LinkedIn, an early investor in open AI co-founder of AI Startup Inflection, recently wrote a book titled Impromptu, co-authored with GPT-4. And it's a fascination and a fascinating read. Reed, uh, great to see you this morning. Uh, I got about a million questions about this, but let's just start with the, the most recent news uh, in terms of those who are calling for some kind of moratorium, temporary halt, or something else to the development of this technology. What do you make of that? Well, I think there's a bunch of different 
uh, parts to that response. I think a bunch of it's well-intentioned. Um, I think the well-intentioned is kind of the question of, look, there's a bunch of different ways that AI can play out, and we should be attentive to obviously protecting against the downsides as well as the amazing upsides. I think some of it's a little bit less well-intentioned, like, hey, everyone else slow down so I can speed up. Um, and this is, of course, one of the, the things where it's overall, I think, broadly a mistaken effort. Uh, because actually, in fact, I think everything we've seen so far in the last few years of development is the best ways to get safety is through larger scale models. They actually train to align better with human interests. And so the 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 call to slow down is actually, in fact, a is is less um, uh, less safe uh, right. than actually, in fact, what they're what they're proposing. Can you explain what seems like a split or rift? between Elon Musk, who's now quite publicly out there as one of the folks asking for this temporary halt, uh, and Sam Altman, of course, uh, who founded OpenAI with him. And I think there's a lot of fascination trying to understand how that happened and what is behind all of that. So I think they're both very well-intentioned folks. Um, I do think that part of the thing that I think um, you know, Elon ha tends to have the, I must build it with my own hands. You look at what amazing stuff he's done with SpaceX and Tesla, and it has the kind of like, it's only great if I do it. Um, and I think uh, Sam is more of the, hey, let's get a bunch of people involved in this. Let's have a distributed set of governance and power and control. Like he's got a safety council, um, you know, with the open AI side and a bunch of other things. And so I think that kind of like what the control and how it's driven, as I think, probably at its root. Um, and um, obviously, uh, you know, in this, you know, kind of divergence of opinion, I, I'm obviously much more on the the path that OpenAI has gone, which is, you know, how do we get other deciders and other people, you know, and other kind of governance uh, in the mix um, as part of what's very important about the issues as we develop this critical technology. One of the big questions um, really for the world of content, I think, is how people are gonna get compensated. You know, on the web for so very long, uh, content providers effectively didn't get compensated, but they could monetize what they were doing through search because you could actually get people to come back to your site and then you could maybe offer subscription or advertising or the like. With something like ChatGPT, it's, it's, it's it, at the moment, it's a one-way operation. And so the question is, is there a licensing fee that you think needs to go on top of being able to effectively train all off of this material. I often think of the idea that I could go write a book and I could maybe buy 10 books, uh, read those books, I pay whatever those books cost, or maybe go to the library and get them, but somebody paid for those books once and then I could use that information in, in my book and I would never owe them anything more than what I paid to see the book the first time. But this would be done on a massive scale and, and what the business model should be for that? Well, I think the business models in artificial intelligence are still very TBD. Um, obviously, OpenAI has a combination of these amazing things with like, you know, uh, chat, GPT, and the API structure. And I think it's to work out. Now, part of, I think, part of what OpenAI's whole mission has been for the decade that it's been operating is how do you provide high quality um, uh, services and catalyze to uh, you know, other developer ecosystems that also have a lot of safety and alignment, uh, and that's part of that 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 joint mission, which is, which is what makes it so important. And part of, of course, the deal with Microsoft is that Microsoft right. buys into that, and that's part of the reason why they they work together. And so the business model, I think, I think every three months, six months, we'll see some new interesting innovation, and I I think it's hard to predict too early. Right. How far are we off though from using this technology? 
to get involved in real life, we'll call them financial transactions, which is to say right now this technology can write things. Hmm. But and you could say, hey, write me an itinerary for the vacation or the business trip that I'm going to go on. But at some point, that itinerary is going to turn into something different because you're going to say, not just write me the itinerary, you're going to say, plan the trip, go, book the airplane, well, I, get the taxi, get the hotel, you know, get all of, all of the, the component parts and permutations. But at that point, then there's actually a lot of things on the line in terms of money and economics and control and everything else. And I think we already see the lens into that future with the ChatGPT API. Right, because part of what that API does is say, "Hey, you, you want to buy something with Shopify? You want uh, Shopify? You want to, you want to, um, you know, uh, you know, plan a trip, you know, and and in in your trip planner, whichever one you have, and that's part of the reason why they're doing this whole plug-in structure uh, to enable that. So you already see that coming. There's already been announced partners building it in, etc. That is that is you know like small and you know, weeks and months away as that develops. And I think, you know, the economics of it, just as you ask, is, look, I think it's 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 TBD. I think OpenAI's mission is to make sure that the AI is really good. And obviously they get, um, you know, there's commercial returns, which Microsoft is is more focused on. You know, OpenAI is more focused on, you know, how do, how do you get beneficial AI technology? Uh, but I think, you know, that's what, that those will be the drum beats by which the technology will evolve. So, Reid, as a, as a big, Thinker. I mean, I can understand the, the near-term caution about our kids and, I don't know, deep fakes and, and you know, fake news, all that stuff. Just, just uh, bear with me. Um, Kurzweil, singularity, things like that. When, when machines know much more than we can ever hope to know, how far off is that? And, and how dangerous would that be just to the species? You know, so I'm not talking about just in the next year or two or whatever. Do you think that eventually down the road we need to be very wary of machines that could actually supplant us in, on this planet or in the universe? Yeah. So the, the thing that, um, that always people get wrong is you say, well, is there a 0% chance of that? And they go, no. And they go, oh, my God. Like, you know, the robots <laughs> right. are coming. And it's like, but if I told you you're going to drive home from work today and there's above 0% chance you're going to die on the road, you go, well, yeah, I'm aware that there's 40,000 deaths and right. fatalities and, and that. And so it's like, okay. So the th and they go from above zero to, oh, my God. And they said, well, it's above zero and it's, and it's humanity. Well, it's above zero in humanity with bio. So we can above prevent zero that? You, you, don't think, you don't think that that's a, 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 a real possibility anytime soon, I guess? No, not anytime soon. And what's more, like when we've seen this so far, it's it's nowhere close to that. I mean, the whole reason I wrote the book Impromptu is if you listen to the general discourse, it's all dictated around the, oh, my God, the robots are coming for your jobs or they're coming for your information sources and democracy, or maybe they're even coming for you. Yeah. And it's like, That's actually, in fact, <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Actually, in fact, the robots are coming to help you. It's right. augmentation intelligence. Well, it's amplification intelligence. Read biotech is going to help us too, but you know yes, we rushed headlong exactly. in. We rushed headlong into that, and you can imagine. Think if the think if COVID was much worse. Think if it was. I mean, we need to we need to think about these things before we we just try to beat Russia and China and take all the guardrails off. I I don't know. But but we already have guide rails. Um, people okay. like OpenAI, DeepMind, other folks have been working intensely on safety for over a decade. They have you know, Microsoft has has hundreds of people dedicated to safety. Like it's it, it is not like there are zero guardrails there already. 
Reid, the only thing I would say is that people who have big investments in AI think we shouldn't stop. People who don't or have pulled out of those investments think we should slow down a little bit. You think that's a case of people talking their book, or is that just putting your money where your mouth is? If you believe in this, you're invested in it. Well, you know, I hope that that I'm always kind of like, you know, investing in the elevation of humanity and the and and kind of what are the you know good things come. It's part of the reason why, you know, I founded Inflection with Mustafa, you know, co- former co-founder of DeepMind, because we think this companion AI was going to be uh, kind of super interesting. And and I, I don't want to do anything. I passed on lots of investments because they they have I think a bad elevation of humanity characteristic over the decades. So. Uh, from my speaking entirely for myself and for my partnership with Greylock, we are 100% like what we believe, and that's part of the reason why we invest also in AI safety. And I've helped, you know, various, you know, Stanford HAI and the Turing Institute here in London and other folks to work on a very broad basis to making sure that it's safe. Reid Hoffman, uh, thank you for joining us this morning, helping us through this. I think this is uh, perhaps going to be the topic for, I don't know, maybe next decade, maybe more. Maybe we'll be the topic we'll be talking about with other chat GPTs instead of ourselves. Yeah, if we're eventually. still around. Or we'll the see. machines might be talking to each other. We'll see. We'll see. Great. Thank you again. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Green for Green, how clean energy fits into the business goals at ExxonMobil with Low Carbon Solutions President Dan Amen. There's a lot of opportunity and a lot to be done in these uh, big industrial processes. A lot of this is sort of happening behind the scenes, but it's hugely beneficial in terms of the emissions reductions and helping getting your heavy industry and getting the world on the path to net zero. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome uh, back to Squawk Box here on CNBC live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods telling investors that in a decade, its low-carbon business could outperform its traditional oil and gas businesses, potentially generating hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue. Joining us right now is Dan Amon. He is the president of ExxonMobil's Low Carbon Solutions Unit. And, and Dan, it's good to see you. Good morning, Becky. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk this through. First of all, I think... Um, Often this kind of goes over people's heads, exactly what low-carbon solutions, uh, what the business is, how it works. Why don't you give us a brief primer? Yeah, sure. So we're doing two things, uh, Becky. We're helping accelerate the world's path to net zero, and we're building a compelling new business uh, for ExxonMobil. If you look at the emissions that the world produces today, energy-related emissions, it's about 35 billion metric tons of CO2 equivalent annually. About 80% of that comes from heavy industry, comes from power generation, uh, industrial processes, commercial transportation. And those are the sectors that we're focused on helping decarbonize. These are often viewed as the hard to decarbonize sectors, but we have a lot of expertise inside of ExxonMobil that we can bring to bear to help uh, decarbonize these industries. We're doing the same thing inside of our own operations, reducing carbon intensity of ExxonMobil operations, and we're taking all of that know-how and helping other heavy industry uh, decarbonize. 
Dan, a lot of our viewers know you, but for those who don't, you're the former president of GM and the former CEO of Cruise, the autonomous uh, car company. When you just mentioned the hard-to-get-to areas, I, I guess that's kind of your connection and where your expe expertise comes in as well? Yeah, if you look at the light vehicle uh, transportation industry, which gets a lot of the headlines, and, and it's really important that, that the automotive industry is decarbonizing there as well, the sectors that we're focused on here today are they're, they're contributing eight times more emissions uh, than the light vehicle transportation industry. And that's why it's so important that we get after uh, those emissions as well uh, in terms of heavy industry, power generation, uh, commercial transportation, and so on. It's just such a such a big, uh, a big you know, contributor to emissions and therefore really needs to be addressed. What, what, what practical solutions exist for that? How does, it, how does it really work if you're trying to get after that market in particular? Yeah, so to just take an example, we announced a, uh, a project yesterday with Lindy, one of the big industrial gas companies, uh, where we're going to be capturing uh, one of their uh, uh, production sites, 2.2 million tons a year uh, of CO2. So we'll be capturing that at their site. Uh, we'll be compressing it, transporting it on a pipeline, uh, and then injecting that into permanent geologic storage uh, underground, thousands of feet underground. Uh, and that will uh, avoid those CO2 emissions from going into the atmosphere. So 2.2 million tons of CO2, just to give you a sense for, for what that uh, represents, that's the equivalent of taking about 700,000 gas-powered cars uh, and converting those to EVs. And that's about the same number of uh, EVs that were sold in the United States uh, last year. So here we are with one project at one industrial site having the same uh, emissions benefit or emissions reduction benefit as uh, all of the EVs sold in the United States last year. And so it gives you a sense for just the, the sort of order of magnitude uh, of the opportunity to decarbonize these big, heavy industrial uh, processes. Uh, and we have several more projects like that uh, in the backlog. Uh, we announced another one uh, a few months ago. And it's really exciting to see the momentum that's building uh, and the, the pipeline of business opportunities that we have uh, coming towards us here. We also have major projects underway uh, on, on uh, the production of uh, low-carbon hydrogen, uh, and that can be used as a fuel uh, to replace natural gas, also in industrial processes. Uh, and that also has the potential to reduce millions and millions of tons uh, of, uh, of CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions. So, so there's a lot of opportunity and a lot to be done uh, in these uh, big industrial processes. A lot of this is sort of happening behind the scenes, but it's hugely beneficial in terms of the emissions reductions and helping getting your heavy industry and getting the world uh, on the path to net zero. You and Darren Woods, the CEO of ExxonMobil, have both talked about how the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is really part of the reason that there are far more opportunities for this in the United States than in other areas of the world right now. I just wonder how much of the profitability of the business or even the existence of the business relies on government programs or tax incentives to, to make sure that, that people actually go ahead with this. Yeah, the way we look at that, Becky, is you know, in the long run, the only way the world's going to get on the path to net zero is for the energy transition to be economically viable. And that's sort of one of the, one of the underlying principles that we have. And for our business to be successful, the, the same needs to be true. Ultimately, what we need to see happen is for a true end market demand and consumer willingness to pay for a low carbon product. You know, that, that's where we need to end up is for the market to get to that point. However, it's equally important that we get the flywheel going. And that's where, you know, well-structured policy like the Inflation Reduction Act uh, comes into play. You know, what that does is, is make some of these projects uh, economically viable or more economically viable, opens up the funnel of opportunities uh, that we're able to pursue uh, and, and really gets that flywheel going so that the market 
you know, can begin to ultimately uh, take over and uh, and support that you know, as we get closer and closer to net zero. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to say that wealthy countries can ask their people to willingly pay a little bit more to try to eventually get to net zero. What do, what do you tell countries where the quality of life isn't even close and, and where you're basically telling them you can't have the lifestyle we have uh, because of carbon concerns or, or whatever uh, you're talking about. I mean, how do you tell people in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa they need to pay a little bit more for uh, non-economically feasible energy um, because the rest of the world is demanding it? You tell them they have, they have to do without? Oh, great question. And that's why it's so important that we that we get going, get the flywheel moving here. One of the things that we're very focused on, Joe, is bringing down the cost of abatement to, to make these processes more and more affordable so that we can expand beyond the sort of obvious, you know, high concentration emission starting points. And so this is going to be a long journey. This is a journey that's going to unfold uh, over decades. It took us decades to get into this position, and it's going to take us decades uh, to work our way out of it, but we need to start somewhere. Can and that's you what even we're doing come today. close to offsetting what what China and India are doing? It, it seems like you're, you know, you're trying to bail out the 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 rowboat, and it's got holes in it everywhere. Because that for every time you 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 go down, what you say, seven hundred thousand cars or something, China and India are building more coal plants. Yeah, well, we, but we've got to get moving, and that's the most important thing we can do is to get, is to get started to demonstrate that these projects can actually work that they are actually economically viable, and that is what will get this flywheel moving. And it's our position that we need to lead the way on this, and that's why you're seeing us you know, announce these real-world projects. You know, I'd say the whole energy transition space you know, has been full of sort of a lot of press releases, a lot of partnerships, a lot of, a lot of MOUs, and what we're very focused on at ExxonMobil is actually getting real projects underway into execution, real steel in the ground, uh, and demonstrating that these these major industrial scale emission projects you know, really do work. Sounds like carbon uh, offsets for for everything else Exxon does, Dan. Still doing very noble work of of producing hydrocarbons that the world runs on. So I, I guess this is a- sort Exxon's of, made a fifteen billion dollar commitment. I know, to the project I know, but too. So it's real ho- money. Hopefully, they're they're, hopefully they're putting real money into yeah. drilling and production. Like having safe, reliable, affordable energy uh, for the world is obviously critically important right now, and that's right. what the you know the corporation's working on. Yeah. And at the same time, helping to decarbonize our own internal operations, and now helping third-party companies decarbonize theirs. And we've we've got a lot of momentum in this. Uh, really excited about the opportunity. But to your point, Joe, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a, a long journey. Yeah, um, but we're we're starting here and we're getting moving. Right. Dan, thank you very much, Dan Ammon. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. The highlights from that show are here on Squawk Pod every day. So follow us wherever you're listening. Turn on your notifications. Give us a review. Send us a few stars. And never miss a dose of Squawk. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.